0: You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. This is the last sermon in the book of James. Generally, we like to go through whole books of the Bible so that we can get every moment, every aspect of that book as we've done with the book of James. However, next week... I'm going to begin a six-week series on marriage, because there is no such thing as a perfect marriage, and we all need help. Today, though, we are in the book of James, where the entire book has been about how faith intersects with, works in every aspect of life. The book was written by James, the kid brother of Jesus. James knows that one day he's gonna die, but the ministry is gonna continue. So today we get the last words, which are James's commissioning of sorts to all believers. So he entrusts to you and me to continue forward the ministry of his big brother, Jesus. So we're gonna look at seven different kinds of people or seven different seasons of life Where all people endure these things, and the key, first and foremost, does this speak to my life right now? And if it doesn't, if that particular category, that type of person, doesn't speak to your life right now, maybe you can think of somebody for whom it does so that you can minister to them. So the first category is in James chapter 5, verse 13, and he asks this question Is anyone among you in trouble? Now, my question to you is, is that you? Financial, emotional, spiritual, relational, suffering. It's a hard season for you. You feel like you're going against the headwind. And it seems like at every turn, there's trouble. If that's you, he says, let them pray. Now, the point is this, we all need to pray, but when there's more suffering, we need to pray all the more. Because usually when there's suffering, there's more complaining, there's more fighting, there's more self-medicating. Instead, we need to be praying more. The big idea of prayer is this, don't focus all of your attention on learning how to pray, focus on getting to know God as Father, Because once you know who your father is, you want to talk to him. You want to listen to him. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is talking to your father. It's listening to your father. In the Old Testament, about 15 times is God referred to as father. And it's almost always on a national level, meaning the father, God is father over the nation of Israel, over all of God's people. It wasn't on an individual level, so it was more impersonal. Everything changes when Jesus Christ steps foot on earth. Everything changes about our understanding of God and our understanding of prayer and our prayer life. 65 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke combined, Jesus refers to God as Father. 100 times in the Gospel of John, he refers to God as Father. It's Jesus' favorite title or name for God. And if Jesus tells us something 165 times, you better believe that's important. At one point, the disciples come to Jesus and ask him, Jesus, teach us to pray. He says, okay, when you pray, here's how you pray. You pray, our Father. There is no major religious leader in the history of the world up to that point who prayed to and asked his followers to pray to God as Father. The point is this when you want to learn how to pray, don't look at religious people, look at dads who love their kids. And look at how their kids react to their dads. If you're a dad who protects, who protects his kids and is also tender with them, that's the father heart of God. If you've seen how dads love their kids and are available to them, that's the father heart of God. And so prayer is simply this, talking to him and then listening to him. Well, how do you listen to God? If you're like me, I've never heard an audible voice. How do you listen to God? Primarily through the Bible. This is God's word to us. And then also through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who will guide us by speaking into our minds and our hearts toward Christ Jesus. All right? So the second question James asks... Is anyone happy? Well, who here? That describes you. You're like, you know what? I'm having a good day. If you're happy, let them sing songs of praise. Thank God for the things that have made you cheerful. So James is acknowledging here that there are going to be some bad days. There are going to be some good days. And the good days are good days to sing. It's about worship. Think about this. When we get together, we do something that most people don't do in public, and that's sing. So every time we sing in church, every time we worship in church, you are not the audience. God is the audience. Now, we're not going to give you a microphone, (laughs) because most of you are not ready for prime time. (laughs) But your job is not just to observe, it's to join in. And let me say this, singing is a form of praying because we are rejoicing in the goodness of God. In addition, singing is a way that we emotionally mature and heal by singing and worshiping. That's how we become more emotional and relational. Let me speak to the men. Most men are not very emotional or relational. Usually your emotional range is either grumpy or asleep. Those are your options. (laughs) I heard an amen. (laughs) I'm glad it wasn't Lori. And oftentimes in church, well, the men won't sing. That's because most men are not emotional and relational. Here's how most men sing. If you're a little bit more charismatic, you're like this. The way that a man grows to be emotionally and relationally healthy starts with a personal relationship with the Heavenly Father. And let me say this. Last year, we began a men's study entitled, Every Man a Warrior. To date, 10 of us have gone through or are now going through this study. Every Man a Warrior, before it delves into what it means to be a godly husband and a godly father and a godly worker and a godly user of resources... It lays the groundwork of what it first means to be in a personal relationship with God. You'll see next week that that's exactly how we begin the marriage series. And I want to issue an invitation now for any man who wants to be a godly leader in your home, in your business, in your community, to be a part of of an Every Man, a Warrior Bible study. We're gonna start a Sunday morning group this September. And while this men's study is great for all ages, we've got retirees that are a part of it, it will be most beneficial for younger married men and men with teenagers to young children. But here we're talking about singing and worshiping. And it's you saying, I'm going to sing to him. I'm going to rejoice in him. I'm going to talk to him. Next category, James. Is anyone among you sick? How many of you right now, you woke up with chronic pain? You're on medications. You're in physical therapy. You're facing surgery. You've been hospitalized. Here's what James has to say. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. We live in a broken, fallen world. How do we know that? There's sickness. Look, Jesus Christ is God, He came to earth as the great physician. And we read 27 times in the Gospels that he healed individual people. 10 times in addition, he healed groups of people. And it says in John chapter 20 that he healed other people that aren't even recorded. But then Jesus dies for our sin. And he rises from death and he conquers Satan, death, hell, and the grave and then he ascends back into heaven. And the question is, if Jesus is up there, do we still have a potential of him healing down here? Because if the healer is up there, what about us down here? Well, what happens then is the book of Acts picks up the story, and it says the Holy Spirit came down upon believers. And the book of Acts, written by Luke, who, by the way, is a medical doctor. And in 12 of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts, it shows that Jesus still heals. So the good news is that Jesus continues to heal. Now, there are two errors that happen. Number one, some people say, well, God used to heal. He doesn't do that anymore. That's not true. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God still can and does heal. And the other error is that God must heal you if you do something to make it happen. Well, guess what? You can't make God do anything. One of the perks of being God is he gets to do what he wants to do. But some will say, well, if only you have enough faith, you can make God heal you. Therefore, if you're not healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. That's just plain wrong. Did you know that there are people Jesus healed in the Bible that give no indication of faith? And some that have incredible faith. All this to say that God is free to do what God wants to do. So between these two extremes that God can't heal and God must heal is that God can and does heal. So let's ask and see what happens. James says that when we're sick, This is an especially important time to invite others in for prayer. So what he says is this, to anoint the person with oil and pray for them. Now, this anointing with oil is unusual. Jesus never used that method, not according to Scripture. And only once is it recorded that the disciples anointed anyone but what it shows is that God works through the natural and the supernatural. He works through the medical and he works through the miracle. In that day, olive oil was used of course for cooking, but in this context, it was used for treating wounds and caring for the skin. What I think James is getting at here is that we need to minister to both the physical and the spiritual, to the body and the soul. And let me say this, the Bible is not anti-doctor. Luke was a doctor. But there are a lot of things that the great physician can do that a human physician cannot. And the anointing of oil is a reminder of the Holy Spirit that the anointing of the Holy Spirit is the power of God at work in and through the believers. So some healing will take place in this life. Some of you have experienced it yourself or you've seen it in others. Some healing will happen in this life, but for all who belong to the Lord Jesus, we will get healing in the eternal life. And if you want prayer, we will pray for you after the service. I mean, if you don't get prayed for at church, where are you going to get prayed for? Well, what else does James have to say? If they sinned, okay, who among us is a sinner? You don't even have to raise your hands. already know the answer. So if you have not found your category yet this morning, there you go. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. And only Jesus Christ can forgive sins. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. This is agreeing with God saying, I was wrong. You're right, God, I was wrong. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. This each other, one another phrase occurs 56 times in the New Testament. That as Christians... We are to be about praying for one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, serving one another. We need each other. (laughs) Who is sinning? The point is we all sin. And we don't want to have a religious environment. We want to have a relation environment. We don't want to beat you down because of what you did. We want to build you up so you don't do it anymore. We don't want to pour guilt on you. We want to pour grace on you. Jesus died for all of us. Yes, we all have some secret struggle, some sin, some times in our lives that we are not the best versions of ourselves, so we can just be honest. And what he's saying is confess to one another, and that produces healing. You know in which environment that happens best? Within marriages and families. So, be honest. Seek forgiveness. Let God change you. And it can produce healing. It can heal your marriage, it can heal your family. Now, generally speaking, the reason that there is so much suffering and sickness in the world is because of sin. The curse of sin has come into the world, so everything is flawed and broken. That is until the king comes back and removes the curse. Sometimes there is not a direct correlation between sin and our suffering. Sometimes it's just a mystery. In the previous section, he, James, called to mind for us a guy named Job. We looked at Job. He was a righteous, blameless, godly guy. Not perfect, but a godly man in his whole life got attacked. He didn't know why. But we know it was spiritual warfare. Satan was opposing him. So Job's suffering was not caused by his sinning. So sometimes suffering is not caused by sinning. But sometimes it is. Sometimes the decisions we make create the pain that we feel. And this can have physical implications. This is where you don't take care of your body through addictions, or what you put in it through what you eat or drink, or if you lead a sedentary lifestyle. This can also have emotional and spiritual implications. If you're a Christian and you sin, how do you feel emotionally? Sick to your soul, you're like, why did I do that? And then spiritually, when you sin, God feels far away, and you feel like you have run away from God. That this relationship with God feels distant and you miss Him. And sometimes our sinning can cause demonic forces to be unleashed in our life. And that can then run into bitterness and unforgiveness. And what happens when you harbor bitterness? It takes a toll on our physical life statistically. It will bring about heart disease, migraines, ulcers, and more. The problem is when we hear God say no, we think, well, he's just trying to ruin our fun. He's just trying to restrict our freedom. No. He's trying to preserve our living. So sometimes we're suffering in life and we're like, I don't know why this is happening. And sometimes we're suffering in life and we say, I know exactly why this is happening. And and look, I love you. And I want to tell you that Satan has lied to you. And that has made you think, this can't change. Yes, it can. Jesus was crucified and buried for it. God has better for you. God has freedom for you. God has good for you. Hear also, what James has to say next. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You and I, we are limited, finite beings. We are dependent. We can't live the life that God intends for us to live without his power, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's... Praying for power. Power and the Holy Spirit are synonymous throughout the New Testament. When it says power, thank Holy Spirit because that's the power source. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, just before he returned to heaven, told the disciples to wait. And he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit is the power source for your soul. God doesn't intend or you or expect for you to live under your own power. You've got to have His power. Look, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, you need the Holy Spirit. If Jesus needed to pray, you and I need to pray. If Jesus needed to sing He did, you know. They would go out to the garden and they would sing then we need to sing. (laughs) And you know what's true? Most of us are far more aware of what's happening with our cars and our phones than we are with our souls. So let me just ask, how many of you know how much gas you've got in the tank of your car right now? (laughs) Yeah, you keep your eye on it. You don't want to run out. How many of you right now know how much battery power you have in your phone as you're looking at it right now and not listening? <laughs> how many of you have no idea how your soul is doing? And so I've got to ask, because you've got to ask yourself, am I connected to the Spirit? Am I plugged in <laughs> to the Holy Spirit Am I being recharged, refueled by the Holy Spirit? This is time alone. This is time in prayer, time in worship, time in God's word, time in God's presence. And then God gives you the power to live the life that you cannot live by your own power. All right, we're on to the next to last couple of verses. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Elijah, an Old Testament prophet James says, it was just as normal as a person as you and me. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed. We just lost that one, didn't we? Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Let me tell you briefly the story of Elijah. His name means, the Lord is my God. Elijah's prophet. How a prophet worked is that God spoke to the prophet and through the prophet to the people. But many people didn't like the message because the message was mostly about repentance. They don't like the message. We don't want to repent. So we're going to attack the messenger. Then the messenger has a choice to make. Am I going to change the message... Am I going to change the message to please the masses, or am I going to keep the message and please him? A prophetic calling is one of constant conflict because you're saying something that is true, and you're hated for it. So Elijah is prophesying during the darkest days of the history of God's people. The king was Ahab, the queen was Jezebel. Ahab was a man who won at work and lost at home. He makes lots of money, he has power, he rules a nation, but his wife is evil, broken, dangerous, and out of control. And what Ahab does is he tolerates her. And Jezebel is not just a person who lived thousands of years ago. She represents a kind of evil spirit that will appear again as we see it in Revelation. Jesus speaks to seven churches and to one of the churches he says, this I have against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. All you need for a Jezebel spirit is to just tolerate. Do we see it today? Oh yes. Most of culture, most of the media, even a lot of education. Because the primary message preached in our culture is one of tolerance. While the Jezebel spirit wants tolerance, the Holy Spirit wants repentance. So the prophet says, repent of your behavior, and a counterfeit rises up and says, no, you don't need to repent of your sin, tolerate it, celebrate it. In this story, God decides, in this time of Elijah with King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, I'm not going to tolerate your worship of false gods. So God sends a drought that lasts three and a half years, and Elijah gets to announce it. You see, as soon as Ahab becomes king of Israel, he immediately begins to bring Baal worship, Canaanite false god worship into the people's lives. That immediately breaks at least the first two of the Ten Commandments. That story is in 1 Kings chapter 17, and in 1 Kings chapter 18, we get the showdown on Mount Carmel. You can read it for yourself. It's where 850 false prophets are to call on their God, and when they're done, Elijah's going to call on his God. Well, there is no contest. The false gods don't answer, and the one true God does. Point is, God uses Elijah because God does extraordinary work through ordinary people. And what James keeps saying is, pray, see if God might show up and show out. And then the final passage, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, individuals sure have, whole denominations have. They've wandered from the truth of Scripture. They've wandered from the authority of God's Word. If any of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins Let me ask you this, are you wandering? You're like, you know, I used to pray, now not so much. I I used to read the Bible, now not so much. I, I used to go to church, and it's not that I don't believe in God, it's just that I don't hang out with him. I want you to hear this a co-director for Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary recently reported this. In 1900, for those of you non-math people, that was 123 years ago. In 1900, 18% of the world's Christians lived in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Oceania. That's like Australia and the surrounding areas. 123 years ago, 18% of all Christians lived in that region, in those regions. Today, that figure is 67%. And by 2050, it's expected to be 77% of all Christians in the world. Africa is home to 27% of the world's Christians, the largest share in the world. And by 2050, that figure will likely be 39%. For comparison, the United States and Canada were home to just 11% of all Christians in the world in 2020, just three years ago. And by 2050, that will likely drop to 8% of the world's Christians. The United States is perhaps the most important mission-filled in the world today, you need to know the heart of God towards you is a father's heart. God wants to hang out with you, and we are here to celebrate the goodness of God. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org. And subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.